Blog Talk Radio. Chat chicks. I'm Jane. I'm Tasha. Dramatic pause again. Yes, yeah, dramatic pause. So, Tasha, how many times do you think we're going to have to identify ourselves? Um, possibly forever because I think so we too. Ain't nothing. We ain't nothing. Yeah, but ain't uh, nothing. yeah, I think we're going to have to remind people. <laughs> anyway, tonight we're really, really excited about our guest. He was a caller uh, when we were interviewing Billy McNamara a couple of weeks ago, and we just fell in love with him, and he fell in love with us, too. So um, he's going to be our guest tonight. So, Tasha, why don't you uh, intro him to our listeners? And... All righty. And, again, I'm reading this because I get nervous. That's okay. Sorry. Um, today's guest is a screenwriter and novelist. His films include Red Meat, Autumn in New York, Resurrecting the Chant, Untraceable, Fame, Gone and Underworld, Awakening. His novels are the trilogy of Christopher, The House Beautiful, and Death by Sunshine, as well as Undiscovered Girl, which he will be directing later this year as an independent film. He's also a husband and a father and a really, really nice guy. So, without further ado... Yes. Allison Burnett. Allison. Glad to be here. I think that once your show, you know, really becomes wildly popular, you won't have to introduce yourselves because you sound like your names. You do? I mean, if someone had to guess which was which, just from your voices, you could guess. In what way? Um, now, Tasha's very yeah. southern, or Tasha's... Or... It's just Tasha sounds offbeat, and mm-hmm. Jane sounds like serious, down-to-earth, grounded, you know, and so you just oh, sound... You, that's what you sound like, so I, don't know, I could tell. Um, I'm thrilled to be here, you guys. This is my first telephonic threesome. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's go with the threesome. Yeah. Hey, Chris. That's what three-way calling is all about. How was um, your day? How was your day? You know, we read yesterday you had tweeted that your, it was your son's first day at school. How did that go? Did you survive? It was his first day of first grade. And first he had gone grade. to kindergarten last year. And last kindergarten... Uh, last year at this time, I carried him into the school. He was the only kid, really, in the whole kindergarten that completely lost it. I mean, he was inconsolably weeping in my arms. Mm-hmm. And he was he's not like a weepy kid or even a scared kid. I just think he'd had a completely idyllic first five years, and he he had gone to some preschool mm-hmm. and stuff, but, you know, he was never warehoused. He, we, we, he, we both work at home. He mm-hmm. had a lot of parental love, and now he was he knew this was a big turning point. And, you know, by the third day of kindergarten, he was really happy and had a great year. And now it's a year later, and he just walked into first grade and waved and went inside, and it was kind of fantastic. See you, Dad. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Bye, Dad. Yeah, bye. And today, yeah, I, uh, today he said to me, I didn't cry once 
Aww. Yeah. Oh, there's also 15 girls and five boys in his class, so he's in heaven. You know, he's. Oh yeah. He's very popular. He will be popular. Yeah. I remember when I when I started kindergarten, I was the only one in the class that wouldn't let my mother go for a, a week. And the teacher oh, finally went up, to, went up to my mother and said, "Okay, um, you can go now." It's time had to you go. Gone, had you gone to nursery school? No, just just kindergarten. Oh, right yes, from that, home that, that, as an only that, child to kindergarten. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. It is a huge deal. Yeah, but a lot of kids who go to preschool, the, the parents can stay for a week, up to two weeks, in preschool. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm keep saying, yeah, a lot of them they get very scared, and sometimes the parents can't stay; they have to go to work, and the kids just cry mm-hmm. the whole morning oh, away. That's heartbreaking. Sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, separation anxiety. Yeah. I know. I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I, I can't stand this. And what really kills me are these kids three months old who go into daycare. No, yeah, I hate to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to start off with some yeah. questions. We're going to grill you, Allison. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready to be ready grilled. Ready for the threesome? Okay. Yeah, I'm ready for well, the, is... the telephonic freeway. <laughs> well, this is a three-part question. Uh, where did you grow up, and mm-hmm. what did your parents do for a living, and how did you get the name Allison with two L's? Because we well, love that name. We I'll, love your I'll name. I'll give you the, the – uh, first of all, I grew up mo- – we moved around a lot. My father was a biology professor. And he also published a lot of poetry, and he wrote novels that were almost published but not because they were a bit racy for the 1950s. And um, he taught, he got his Ph.D. at Cornell, where I was born, in Ithaca, New York. And then you know, we moved to Charlottesville, Virginia. We moved to Brussels, Belgium. Then we moved to Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Then we moved um, – our final stop was Evanston, Illinois. So from oh. ten, 10 years old on – I lived in Evanston, Illinois, where my dad taught at Northwestern. Um, but I kept my Cleveland roots, and to this day I'm still a rabid Cleveland sports fan. So that's my only connection to my earlier days. But I think of Evanston as really the place where I grew up. And I went to Northwestern, so I just stayed in Evanston after high school. Uh-huh. Um, and my mother is a, is a uh, clinical psychologist. And, Mine too. Uh, Mine too, Allison. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't don't consider it a badge of honor, I have to tell you. Um, And my my feeling (laughs) about therapists is clearly expressed in my book, Christopher, where I I kind of let um, – I I have nothing against therapists. I just don't think it's great to have one as a parent. (laughs) Um, I I love some therapists a lot. Yeah, I I do understand (laughs) Um, maybe they should be sterilized by the APA if they get certified. Um, I hope my mom's not listening. No, I hope she isn't. Um, and then, um, and then, um, uh, and so my father died when I was 20, right after college, and uh, I moved to New York City right after college was over. I got the name Allison. Um, I'll give you the shortened version. The long, funnier version is an essay on my website. We read that. I read that. Great. Yeah, on uh, on under essays. There's an. I, I I did it because so many people had asked me over the years. I thought, why not just get this all done on paper? Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, my uh, my father's name is Allison, and my son's name. Um, and um, really, my grandfather just read it in a book. It was an, a novel where there was a, a Scottish knight named Sir Allison something or other, and he just liked the name, and he gave it to my father in 1932, 
And uh, it was a very rare name for men uh, and women. But mm-hmm. really, um, men could be one L or two Ls, but girls could only be one L. And it was very rare. You won't meet a lot of elderly people. You won't meet many people sort of over 50 named Alice, and it really just isn't mm-hmm. very common. And then mm-hmm. Mia Farrow had the name on Peyton Place, uh, played Allison McKenzie in the mm-hmm. early 60s, and the name just exploded in popularity after that. Mm-hmm. And so then my parents gave it to me before Mia Farrow came along on Peyton Place, okay. and then I gave it to my son because I'm, I'm a sadist. Now, um, <laughs> his, name is, his name is Allison Keats Burnett, and we call him Keats. So he doesn't really, he knows his name is Allison, but he's mostly just Keats to everybody, so. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you ever got teased, you know, um, with that name, like sort of a boy named Sue, a boy named Allison. I got, got, most of the jokes I got were from adults. It was weird. Really? Like the kid, yeah, 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 when I was a kid. You had mentioned that in the essay, too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I was a kid, children, well, children didn't really think about it much, and they Mm -hmm. they didn't know any girl Allison's. Really, there was like maybe yeah. one in my whole school, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like that girly to them. But then I'd meet their parents. They go, "Oh, oh, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, oh girl really? named Sue. And what's your what? sister's name? Thank Harry. You. you know this kind of thing." Mm-hmm. And, and I just sort of stare at them, bewildered. Like I yeah. just couldn't believe they thought that was funny. But yeah. then, as an adult, I found that I'd be at a party or something, and people would just come up and just be really snide about it. I just thought it was so bizarre that people just think it's sort of okay to like just. Like making doing stupid riffs on your name, but a lot of girls thought it was the greatest. Like I had a lot of girlfriends yeah. who just thought it was beautiful, and I got that a lot. It so. is See, there you go. It worked. It, it, worked. it worked. It worked. All right, let's go back uh, just a just a little bit, and let's talk about high school. Um, mm-hmm. How was? Did you enjoy high school? Were you a nerd? I had a great experience. I was, I was, I guess, what they call a theater geek, you know. We okay. had a big public school in Evanston, same school where, you know, the Cusacks went and and um, Marlon Brando went to my junior oh. high. Who else? Oh. I mean, it's, these are great public schools. And, um, and I just found out that the kid, one of the kids from Workaholics, have you ever seen Workaholics? No, I haven't. It's this brilliant show on Comedy Central. It's very youth-oriented, like, you know, young early 20s, teens. Uh-huh. But it's really funny. I just found out one of them went to my high school, too. Anyway, it's a big public school with a great, you know, in those days, those public schools in the, in the 70s were just amazing. And mm-hmm. it was like a city, you know, 3,600 kids with yeah. a theater wing and a sports wing. And anyway, so we had a great theater department. And, um, and I uh, – and so – while I loved sports as a kid, we, once I got to high school, I just sort of, you know, went into the theater world, and, and you know, I was a good kid. I got good grades. I worked hard. I didn't, you know, screw up, and I and I did tons of plays. And I, I got to write a lot of comedy sketches, and I mm-hmm. directed plays, and I, and I starred in them and all that stuff. So it was good training, especially to go to Northwestern, um, yeah. which was very much the same. Yeah, yeah. So did you ever really want to be an actor or you just always knew you were going to be a writer um it's funny if if i remember when i was a senior in high school and you know my my mother was like you know what are you going to do you know or somebody you know and i i just said that i wanted to act in movies and write them and direct them and i wanted to write novels and i wanted, wanted to, to do it all Allison. Yeah, <laughs> and i really meant it i want to direct movies i want to be in movies like and i was just crazy like i just thought 
you know, that I could just do all these things. And then after I finished college and I decided to move to New York, I remember saying to someone, I'll go to New York, I'll write plays, and if it doesn't work out and I fail, I'll just go to Hollywood and write movies. Like, I just knew that would be easy compared to being a serious New York playwright. Mm -hmm. And I was right because I went to New York and I lasted about 10 years. And I had very modest, if almost no success. I had no agent. I had nothing. And then I moved to L.A. And within a year, I was making a living as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Well, while you were in New York, you were, we're going a little ahead here, but and we'll go back to our original question, but you were um, a tutor and, and a proofreader. Yeah, I, I paid my dues all right. Mm-hmm. It was hard, like, for, you know. Yeah, I mean, to pay the rent, I mean, to me, if you look at how many American artists and writers in history have had a leg up by being subsidized by someone, it's kind of amazing. You know, very a lot of writers who made it never worked a day in their lives, and it really helps because in your 20s, it just saps your strength. I mean, the stress, the anxiety is enormous, and, um, I, you know, I didn't want a job that, I was offered a job at Time Magazine, Mm-hmm. And it, I would have been like a fact checker, proofreader, editor type, and you know that kind of stuff very often leads to jobs. And you, next thing you know, you're writing, and it's fulfilling you, and it's giving you validation. And you can go to a party and say what you do for a living, and it's not embarrassing. And I was actually afraid of a job like that because I was afraid that I would never write if I had if I got complacent. So mm-hmm. I didn't mind the fact that I was a proofreader and a tutor because it actually paid really well. And there was no way I could ever kid myself into believing that either of those was going to fulfill me. Um, But it was exhausting. And I worked, you know, 1130 at night till 6 in the morning as a proofreader for about seven years. And then I tutored high school kids in the SAT. And then I helped them with their achievement tests and their college exams. And, um, you know, it was was exhausting. And then I would also write 35 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So I was was tired. I kept you out of trouble. It sure did. <laughs> sure did. Kept me out of fun. <laughs> My twenties were largely a, a painful, anxious blur of hard work. Um, but by the time I came here, I felt that I had had gone through quite an apprenticeship. Um, ironically, all of the things I wrote in my twenties which I think I made $100 as a writer in my 20s. All of that stuff that never led to anything, I used virtually every word of it in my 30s and 40s as a writer. I I rewrote the novels and got them published. I got the short stories published on different websites. Um, Three of my short stories became became red meat. Um, I mean, I just, every bit of it I used. It just blew my mind. I mean, I was perfectly prepared to believe that all of it was just going to sit in the trunk and that, that, were the do, that, were, that those were the dues that I paid. I never imagined that all of it would be reclaimed. Well, see, things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. Just kind of That's some of my circle. advice for young writers is just save everything. You have no idea what it will mean to you later or how you'll use it and never think, never get rid of anything. Just hold on to it. Yeah, yeah. That's good, good advice. Very good advice. Yeah. I wanted to ask you when you uh, you already mentioned where you went to college. Um, you majored in what, what did you major in? Oral the, or, or, the oral, oral interpretation, interpretation of literature. What is that? It is. It was invented at Northwestern. I think there's something like 50 colleges in the country that teach it, but Northwestern's the best for it. They now call it performance studies. But for decades, it was called the Oral Interpretation of Literature. Because I grew up in Evanston, they had it at my high school. 
So mm-hmm. I knew what it was before I ever started Northwestern. I started Northwestern as a theater major, and I just quickly didn't like that I had – there was a career requirement where you had to work on the crew of a play. And, 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 and Oral and Terp had an English requirement, which was much more interesting to me. So essentially what it is is, is the study of literature – but instead of writing, you know, a 10-page paper the way you might in the English department, you write a three-page paper, and then you perform from oh. the work of literature. And your performance embodies um, the and reflects the study that you made of the literature. So if you write a paper on the narrator in a Yeats poem, and what the how the narrator chooses his words and what you can learn about the narrator and his point of view from the work, you then perform it embodying what you learned and how you perform it. And you perform it at a lectern in front of the room. So if you're doing a scene from Streetcar Named Desire, you are Blanche and Stanley. Okay. How does that work? I, I raped myself. In his scene, free car. You're standing. I mean, you're looking at the wall. You're looking behind the viewer. And you're looking over them. And one focal point on the wall is Stanley Kowalski, and the other spot on the wall is Blanche Dubois. And you're doing both. Wow. And, and believe it or not, when people do it right, the audience uses their imagination. Mm-hmm. But you get a complete full experience. I did a scene from Equus where I had to be like be stabbing, wow. like had stabbing horses to death, leaning over the lectern to do it. But it's all done with gesture and eye and voice and acting, and it's it's really kind of magical when it works. I know it sounds kind of freaky, but um, and and we had a, we had really serious great classes. We read all of Shakespeare in one year um, from this great teacher, and and we would have um, he would focus different in different areas of literature and it could be poetry it could be drama it could be prose and um and i got lots of leads in the theater plays in the theater department so i still got to be an actor but i also got to be a thinker and got Mm -hmm. to i had an english requirement so i was really almost like an english major and a theater major at the same time that's that that's an incredible course i mean it's almost like a one-man show you're doing doing it all yeah, and, and, and you really develop a reverence for the text. Mm-hmm. So if you become an actor, you really take your cues from the writer. You learn how to study what they're writing mm-hmm. and exactly what their intention is. You're always right. looking at the writer's intention. You're not just putting your ego over it. And mm-hmm. as a writer, it's fantastic because, you know, you're really learning about prose and drama at the micro level. You're studying every word choice. Right. Wow. I'm sure that was a rewarding experience. And it's good training. It was very good training. So this is only taught at Northwestern, or do you think other other colleges picked it up? Yeah, I think like 50 other colleges. I think it started in the 20s, in the Mm -hmm. 20s, yeah. Um, When I was there, the old-timers that had first originated it were just, some some of them were just beginning to retire. So they were all, you know, 60 or 70 when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got out some of these famous, these great teachers. Wow. Jane, do you want to take some callers? Yeah, we have some calls, but before we before I connect the first caller, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How do you know when it is ever a good time to refrigerate tomatoes, Allison? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't buy a lot of tomatoes. My kids just won't eat them. 
I don't, don't know why. I'm so shocked by that question. Um, <laughs> Do you know where? <laughs> um, I think you know the background to this. I have to tell you, I have absolutely no idea. Oh, you don't? No. Okay. <laughs> well, Tasha and I were were, were attempting to uh, notify some of your friends yeah. to call in. You yeah. Know, it, it, it's a, a bad time, and some people are traveling and so on. But um, when I was on Twitter, I, I tweeted Stephen Weber. Yeah. And um, I asked him if he would call in, and he said he would be traveling. He would be unable to call in. He said he, if he did call in, this is the question he would ask you. I think he's being completely arbitrary. Stephen really is like the lost Marx brother. I mean, he has sort of a Harpo quality about his, his whole manner, and he's a total genius. His brain is like the fastest, funniest brain I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, he is. His, his, yeah, his, his Twitter tweets are just insane. absolutely yeah. insane yeah, and, and brilliant. And it never stops. Yeah, and, it's, and, and you'll see they'll be like nine seconds apart. I don't know how. His brain is like a ticker tape of, of humor. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So he made that up off the top of his head. He has no. It has. He did. It took no him meaning. like five seconds to yeah. to, to tweet back. <laughs> it has no meaning. He I know. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's, he kept that's, by that's, Stephen Wilbur. <laughs> and we also had um, Dee Freeman. Yes. She wasn't able to call in. She's traveling, but she did say kick butt. Yeah, she she played um, the prostitute, a streetwalker, yes. and yes. red meat. And she, she was terrific. great. She was. And and, and, it, and it was a very hard role to cast. It's very hard to get someone who comes in and they just, she has a great voice. And mm-hmm. she just came in and, and she just won the part in three seconds. She was fantastic. Yeah. And I I don't think I've ever seen her since in 15 years. Well, it didn't take her long to get back to us. It was very nice. And she really, really wanted to call, but uh, she was traveling. But oh, uh, she wanted so I to guess send her regards. So you did... Line up some surprises. Is that uh, is it going to be We're, we're trying. Life? We're trying. Okay. <laughs> so let's uh, bring on our. You want to? You go yeah, ahead. I was Tasha. just going to tell him uh, your friend Shelley also yes. wanted to say hello, and she was going to try to call in, but she's in London right now. Um, mm-hmm. But she wanted to uh, send her. She love. is hilarious. That would have been really funny. She's a very funny girl, and she, we we have the rare distinction of having gone to ju- junior high, high school, and college together. Because okay. she was a local, she was a local Levinstonian. I remember I saw her on the college campus, and her father had just died. Mm-hmm. I think he was fairly old at the time. And I said, "How are you taking your dad's death?" And she said, "Pass fail," and kept walking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was always funny. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're going to connect our first caller, mm-hmm. and it's area code three one zero. Hi, you're on the Hi. air. Yeah, who's this? Hello. Hello. Yeah, hi. Who's this? Is this Anna? Hey, are you talking to me? Yes. Yes, we're <laughs> talking to you. Sorry. <laughs> hi, Anna. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Allison. Can you hear who this is? Yeah. I can't hear who it is. <laughs> who is it? This is Anna Corinne. I played all Oh my me. God! How funny! <laughs> That's so great. Hi, Anna. It's been so long. Hi. I know it's been long. Oh my God! I'm so <laughs> excited that you're directing again. Yes, it's been quite a while, hasn't it? I never. If someone yes, had told yeah. me at the time, 
if someone had told me at the time that it was not going to happen again for all those years, I would have just been devastated. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't like I, di- I sort of didn't even try, really, because after directing Red Meat, they sort of botched the selling of it, and it took a long time for anyone to really see the movie. And by then, um, I was back in the world of studio screenwriting, and that was going really well. And then after a couple of years of just getting sort of back-to-back jobs, I just got had this urge to go back to my first love, which was writing novels, mm-hmm. and I did that. And so, you know, every now and then I I would sort of try to get something going in the indie world again, but it's such a difficult road. And mm-hmm. I was really loving the studio writing, and I was loving writing novels. So I just let it go all these years, and now I just feel so excited to get back to it. Yeah. And you should. Allison, you are a brilliant director. I mean, seriously, I had so much fun working with you, and and you just, Amazing! You create such an amazing environment for everybody to work in, and it makes it very easy for an actor to just like give it all. You know, well, it was so great. Also, you were right you were... back at where you belong. <laughs> oh, thank you, Anna. You were so you were. And this was really honest. She had done movies before, but nothing like mm-hmm. this. And I oh, correct, we fell I in have... love with her character. Yeah, yeah we fell did. in love with her. Well, in terms of terms of. Um, really getting a chance. You know, Anna's a gorgeous girl. She's Swedish. She's she's voluptuous. She Hollywood isn't gonna know what to do with that and know where to put her and, and as luck would have it, like she just stepped in you know, this part was so perfect for her. But mm-hmm. she had never had a chance to show that that side of like the depth of her soul. And she in the audition she took direction so well. And so many actors, you know, they never get directed. Really, they, I've talked to really famous actors who say, oh, you know, I've made 28 movies and I've only been directed three times. You know, mostly the, the director's like in the, in the truck, you know, looking at right. screens and saying, louder, could you go over by the furniture, do that softer. But there's no real connection the way there is in theater, for instance. Right. So my background was in theater. So, you know, I, I, the thing I always remember about Anna's performance is that you'll remember the scene where she has slept with... Um, John Slattery, mm-hmm. and has not slept with the guy she was supposed to be set up with. Mm-hmm. And she's lying in bed, and she desperately wants the guy she's been set up with not to hate her and not to run away, but to lie in bed with her and, and be with her. But how do you do that when you've just slept with his best friend? I mean, it's awkward, mm-hmm. at least. <laughs> so so any, you know, the instinct in an actor could very well be to just sort of go at him with all the emotion. And all I said to her was, I said, if you cry and you're too demanding, he's going to run away. And you know that. So you have to keep things light. And you have to keep things sweet and so that he's, he, he's relaxed enough that he'll sit with you. So that's what's a simple rule of acting is that you're playing the opposite. So what she's playing is, I'm fine. I'm not a wreck. I'm great. I'm fun to be with. Come and stay with me. But, of course, her heart is breaking. Yeah. And so, so that's what makes that scene, to me, so moving is her struggle not to break down. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Allison. You know what? You gave me every single direction of that scene and all the scenes. You were so specific. I mean, uh, it it was a pleasure because I didn't really have to invent that much myself. It's it's like you you were every word, everything. You just 
You're so good. <laughs> You're very sweet. Thank you. Thank uh, you. By the way, Anna, did you work with my father-in-law? My dear, my dear. Oh my goodness! Yes, I worked with Family King, yeah. who is. Um, yes, it was actually the first job I ever got in Los Angeles because I'm obviously from from Sweden, and um, and he got me my SAG card. Oh so my that was God. very exciting. And Sam King, he was such a wonderful man. He, he's called the oh. uh, Red Shoes Diaries. Yeah, it was a Red Shoe Diary. Yeah, I, somehow yeah. we figured it out at some point. We made we figured out the connections. My father-in-law passed away in February. His name is Zalman King, and he yeah. created the Red Shoe Diaries. And he he wrote he co-wrote he nine wonderful. and a half weeks with with his uh, with my mother-in-law and Pat Patricia Knopp, and they did a lot of um, wrote a lot of movies together. And Zalman mm-hmm. was like him, even though his work was largely erotic, which gave people the idea mm-hmm. that he was some sort of you know. Hugh Hefner type. In fact, he was quite the opposite, and one of the kindest, most artistic, um, gentle, uh, you know, monog- monogamist um, you guy, you guy you could ever meet, um, and a really wonderful man. And and you're, it was you're that's wonderful though that you got your that he saw your talent and that you got your SAG card from him. Oh, it was, and 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 I agree. You know. Um... From you know, I had a certain interpretation of who, of who he might be, you know, right. because because I'd known of his work right. and such. Uh, and I was so surprised what a wonderful person he was. He's not at all what well, I you thought. Could expect you know, know, no, 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 just sweet, normal. Yeah. Uh, you know, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, there was so an it was outpouring a of love for him. For him. When he died, yeah. there was a real outpouring of love for him, mm-hmm. and you know these. You know, it, he died when he was seventy years old, and and um, you know uh, they were, they misreported that he was sixty nine when he died, and all these idiots mm-hmm. were tweeting and making sixty nine jokes, and it was so oh, disgusting. Jesus. And then oh, suddenly there was no. this outpouring. Like Charlie Sheen wrote this beautiful thing, and then David Duchovny gave a long interview for. Entertainment Weekly, you can Google it, where he just said, this guy discovered me and believed in me when no one else did, and he was more of an artist than so many people who claimed to be artists. He had you know, artistry in every fiber of his being, and he just wrote this beautiful eulogy to him. Exactly. Oh, um, so oh that, that is really so great. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that David Duchovny wrote that. Um, yeah, you can Google but, it. But, I was so great. In fact, one of yeah. the dying Well, didn't he was, do a, lot of red, a couple of Red Shoe Diaries, too? He, 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 no, he was he, an narrator, wasn't he? He was a narrator of the original mm-hmm. movie, and he discovered Duchovny. And that was when Duchovny was really had a great screen presence, but really was very um, subdued. I mean, he barely showed anything. And in a way, he's right. Like there was, he said, you know, there was no reason for anyone to have believed in me at that point. He goes, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I was just starting out. And Zalman just saw it. He saw that this was a star in the making and he, he devoted it. And mm-hmm. so he did the, the two-hour TV movie, or the two-hour uh, pilot movie mm-hmm. and then he also narrated the show. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, you should see the list of people that were in those Red Shoe Diaries. It's really long. I mean, a lot of people started there. I know yeah. Lucy Liu's first, first show. Though. The first show he was starring in um, and that is the one I was in and then he was narrating and, and uh, he was a Great to work with. I mean, really great to work with too. Yeah, yeah. yeah my my yeah. wife is um, his daughter uh, wrote about eight of those and was involved for the first couple of years of the TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, I someday I'm think I think it'll come back. Uh, you know, so. because there's all these half hours 
and all these stars when they were young. Lucy Liu did one when she was like 22 or something. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and I think someday I, I wouldn't surprise me if they reappear on cable somewhere. Yeah. Right. So. Right. Right. And we can all see Anna's. Yes, we're what, what Anna was, fans now. What, what was the plot Anna of yours? Do you remember what was the plot of your Red Shoe Diary? Um, well, it was the um, three guys that meet every Wednesday or something. No, 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 no. no, no, no. What, was, what was the plot was of mine? your Red Shoe Diary? Oh, Red Shoe Diary. Oh, I was actually, I had a supporting part in it, a smaller part. Um, the plot was, oh, my God, it was such a long time ago. But um, basically, um, Bridget Bacco, an actress, yes. uh, was um, engaged to David Duchovny's character. Oh, so you were, then, in the fir- you were in the first one? You were in yes. the pilot? Wow. Yes, I was in it. <laughs> oh, so Ted Kotcheff directed it, right? Or did, did, did Zalman Zalman did Zalman yes, direct it? Did. Oh, I think Ted Kotcheff did the very first TV show. No, 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 no. I worked with Zalman. Yeah, you did the movie. You did the two-hour movie. Yes, and I then, did. Yeah, and then and then the first episode of the show was directed by Ted Kotcheff, who did Rambo and Weekend at Bernie's oh. and a bunch of other movies. Okay, so you That's did the right. you did the actual movie. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. And I mean, to work with all these actors and some of them are huge stars now and everything, it's just, I mean, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. so amazing, too, Allison, you know. Yeah. <laughs> when I found out that you were married to his daughter, <laughs> I got <laughs> work first with Stephen and not you. It was, it was great, yeah. That's really funny. That's really funny. So, are you acting again? Uh, yes. I mean, I was um, out in out for almost a decade, really, because I got married and and uh, left show business and um, married uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, no, I did not say that out loud. Oh, did I? No. oh yeah. <laughs> Can you just leave that out? Cut it out. <laughs> so I, I left. Uh, I came back to Los Angeles, and um, I really didn't think I would ever, you know, do anything again. Uh, but then... Faith wanted otherwise, so um, I started to both act and produce. I did uh, Ashes, Ashes. I had a supporting part in that. I got a lot of, a lot of um, awards and, you know, went to all sorts of film festivals and um, and a short film called I Do, which I had to lead, which also won a lot of awards. And now I'm actually both producing and having the lead in a pilot called Yonder Quest. So I am back and I'm working and I. That's great. <laughs> yes, yes. That's really great. It wow. is. It is. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these 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 girls are good at finding people from the past, boy. I have to get, I have to hand it to them. I know. <laughs> we have our I know. ways. I have no idea why they're nervous. I think they're so sweet. They're I've great. Been, oh, we like Ralph Edwards. You got right back to us. You were just really so sweet. Lovely. Of course, it's Allison. Who wouldn't, you know? <laughs> Thank goodness for Facebook because the Facebook matters. You know, yeah, Heidi, Heidi Nicole, Noelle Lenhart, who played Mia in Red Meat, um, mm-hmm. she married Stephen Stills' son. Oh, and she did? Yeah, and they have kids, and my friend's kids go to school with her kids, and, 
and Stephen Stills was my my idol when I was a kid. Oh. He was the first concert I ever saw when I was 12, and he was like my god, and I thought it was so funny that I ended up marrying his son, Chris. Oh, that is so I haven't seen her ever since we worked. I mean, yeah. I'm not really in touch with, with anyone. I haven't seen, I haven't seen anyone. <laughs> I haven't seen her either. <laughs> not once. But it's so fun. I mean, it's so great that John Flattery is doing so well. And, I know. Oh, yeah. Man. I mean, yeah. yeah we John wanted Slattery, to contact John Slattery to come. If John Slattery had been famous back when we did Red Meat, we would have had great distribution. A lot of distribu- distributors said if only you had a male lead that anybody had ever heard of. You know, oh, I have a brilliant idea, Allison. Allison, mm-hmm. you have to you have to put out the movie again, and instead of having me on the cover without my name, by the way, never mind. Uh-huh. But <laughs> John yeah. on the cover. So, no, there you go. Really? I think one of the it was re, it was issued twice. I think the very first time you could you hmm. see him, you see him and Stephen, and then the other version is just you, or mostly you. Um, yeah, but, no, I, but I mean, his face is so small, you know, you kind of have to make it him. I mean, they, they, I mean, all sorts of people have done that. They do yeah. Well, the funny thing, the, the really sad thing about the movie is that the very people who would love it most, hmm. who are these smart, discerning, artistic, sophisticated people like our lovely hostesses of the show, um, hmm. are the ones that would never find it because the way the covers always make it look so salacious that you mm, think it's mm. some sort of borderline porn movie, mm-hmm. and you know you can't tell by the way they build it, the way they marketed it, that it's actually right. a serious film. So then the kids, these kids rent it, wanting to see skin, and they don't see enough of it, or they're, mm. it, it's the movie's so much more soulful than they expect. They they sort of trash it on you know Netflix and go, oh, it's so boring. You know, there's mm-hmm. hardly any this and hardly any that, and they don't. Re- you know, the people that really would love it don't often see it. And that's just yeah, yeah. the way it is. But I, I think that maybe you were a little bit, you know, ahead of your time, just like <laughs> you were talking about before. No, no, I'm serious. Mm-hmm. Because you're talking about before, you know, everything you wrote in New York and you basically thought it would be, you know, collecting dust in a drawer. I think it might be the same with red meat. Well, I would, I would like to think so. I know one thing. It, it was made at a time of amazing amazing political correctness very few people remember how bad it was in the mid to late 90s but like you know white guys getting laid was about the least commercial thing on the planet you know Mm -hmm. sundance everything at sundance was multicultural and and you know it's like white guys getting laid misogyny was such a dangerous subject and i I noticed that when we got into slam dance that every movie in slam dance was an undercurrent of sex because sex right. was taken out of Sundance. Like, that right. wasn't the currency. Very quick, so in the company of men was made the same, like, week that Red Meat was made. Like, we finished exactly at the same time. Oh. No in their kidding. movie, a, gore, a beautiful deaf girl is... is, is, she's, is my, this, she's a good friend of mine. <laughs> oh, really? Well, she's victimized, yeah. you know, by these horrible men. But because yeah. she's so beautiful and a victim... Mm. The movie demonizes those guys, and she's just sort of a, the lovable victim. But in Red Meat, right. the women are knowing accomplices in their own right. exploitation and victimization. Yeah. Yeah. They're self-destructive, mm. and they're part of it. So it's much more difficult to swallow. It's much more painful about the way men right. and women treat each other in their 20s 
And I think, and that's, and then the irony, so we got into slam dance, they got into Sundance, the rest is history. But a year later, when they needed a movie to launch the Sundance channel, the first world premiere, the woman who ran the festival came in and said, oh my God, I found this movie, it's the perfect first movie for us, it's so great, it's called Red Meat. And everybody just stood there and didn't say a word because they had rejected it at the festival. But in a year, a lot had changed. And then happiness came out, which was so shocking. And suddenly, it was cool to be dark and to be sexual. And, mm-hmm. and then all of that, that PC crap started to fade away. I know. I know. I was very surprised when I saw it come out. I mean, like, it was everywhere. And the Sundance Channel, it was playing all the time and everything. Mm-hmm. And that is when I was up north in Washington. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think that was, you know, really yeah. great to see. Um, yeah, but it just got it. It <laughs> took a long time. <laughs> well, it's, it's a brilliant movie, and if people haven't seen it, they should, you know. Well, it's on Netflix, so it's easy Netflix, to find. Yeah. Red and meat. it's also on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a great movie. So what is this new movie about? Well, it's based on it's based on a novel of mine. It's about a 17-year-old girl who's a blogger. And you in the book you are reading her blog. And she takes a year off college to blog about her life. And as and she's optimistic and beautiful and upbeat and promiscuous and reckless and careless. And as you follow her life, you start, and she's got a lot of pain inside her and a lot of voids that need to be filled, almost in the way like looking for Mr. Goodbar or something, except she's looking for mm-hmm. Mr. Good Dad. And mm-hmm. as she is um, out there, you start to realize that she's kind of a runaway train, and it becomes mm-hmm. almost like a psychological thriller because she's really making terrible choices and doesn't have the faintest idea. And um, And then it has a sort of, Dangerous, unpredictable ending. That's all I can say. Oh, I love it. That sounds so intriguing. Do you have a role for me, Allison? <laughs> I'll tell you, there there are very, very, there are very few roles in the movie. It's not a big movie, and a lot of the roles are for teenagers, and then there are some yeah, for older kidding. women and men. But, they, but it's all about how people look and whether they look like there's Katie's mother, you know. Mm-hmm. There's Katie's mm. mother's boyfriend. I don't really think there is anything, but I'll think about it. I mean, there's there's a couple of party scenes, but I don't think there's any. There's not many lines no. in them. But I'll keep you in mind. <laughs> I promise. You, want, you have to invite me to the premiere, though. Okay, I can do that. I'd be happy. <laughs> can we come great. to the premiere too? Yes, you can. <laughs> uh, but Anna has to wear the red dress from Red Meat. Oh, definitely. Uh, oh, you have definitely. that one. <laughs> you have that one. <laughs> that was a spectacular dress, I have to say. Um, and and I, it, I can I can still fit in it. That is really good. But I had to wear another red dress because I don't have that one. <laughs> I love when you enter in slow motion and he's like poor little that that actor who played uh, Chris is Stephen is Stephen Mailer. That's Norman Mailer's son, by the way. Oh, oh wow! Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And James Frain, you know, who played it was a great cast. Yeah. Did you recognize a... James Frain, who played? I did, yeah. Yeah, he's in he's in the Tudors, um, and he's done a lot of movies. The English guy. Yeah. Oh, he works a lot, and yeah. uh, I mean, he, he's such a brilliant actor. He I know, I know. Such a good actor, and Jennifer Grey and Laura Flynn Boyle. I mean, you really got an amazing cast. 
I know, but it wasn't a name cast at the time, you know, that we didn't have a guy that anyone knew, and that was Well, you did have a name cast because the girls were, yeah, I mean, but that did, that Ray didn't, and Laurel Pim Boyle were that didn't count but, in terms of getting distribution. I know, I know, that's so, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, John really Flattery with brown hair. He was died. He was died. He was <laughs> oh, he already died gray. It? He was 34 and it was already gray. Wow. I was yeah. wondering about that, you know, because he is all gray now. <laughs> man is I like, know. He always was. Really? Yeah, we died That's not how I remember you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, but, wasn't, uh, it wasn't white, was but it so was so much fun there. to work with. I mean, John Flattery was so much fun to work with. Really easygoing, very, you know. All we did was laugh. Easy to get along time. with. Even, even yeah. the most, like, you know, difficult scenes like the one we had, you know, oh. the very intimate scene. It was he was so cool, you know, it was yeah. not a big deal. So But the, but his comedy came through in some oh. of the scenes. The bathtub scene and the, I mean there was just he so was many like art, scenes he where he's like cleaning the apartment and he's just when he's cooking the clo- uh, the, the, cooking the, the, oh, yeah, that's the apron. My favorite scene when he's cooking naked in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> he was like Art Carney, I swear to God. <laughs> Oh, his his part in Mad Men, he's almost the same. He's that sexist. I know. Kind of, you know. I know. I don't want to say prick, but yeah. Go ahead. He's kind of a guy. Yeah. Go ahead. You know what? He's the sweetest guy in person. I mean, in real life, he's the sweetest guy, but he's just a really good actor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just like I know that Allison for the longest time thought that I was like, oh, I realized. <laughs> <laughs> so, they were so disappointed when you had boundaries and standards. <laughs> oh. Well, we just thought you were terrific, Anna. Yeah, you were wonderful. And you were Thank just you so lovely, just lovely and touching. And it was such a pleasure to work with Allison, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. I really thank you so much. And and thanks for calling, here. Anna, and, and thank so you. sweet getting back to us. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Okay, take thank care. You. Okay, thank bye-bye. You. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, that was so sweet. Oh, that was a surprise. Oh, you guys hey? are good. You guys are good. We try. Yeah, we are, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Should we take another call? Sure. Okay. Why not? Okay, we have area code 310. Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. Billy. Can you hear me? Mr. Yep. Yeah, we can hear you. Hi, Yep. Yep. (laughs) Hi, Billy. (laughs) Hey, Allison. (laughs) You're so funny. Yep, yep. The reason why why I'm on this call, actually, is because I've been calling out and returning my phone calls. Do I have a part in your movie or not? First of all, I want to make it clear, he has not been calling me. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I want to make sure the, 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 people, the, 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 the people at large, <laughs> the four million people who listen to this, to this cast, I want them to know that you have not been calling me. You know, I don't know, man. I don't. You know, there's so few roles, and so every single person I've ever met who has a SAG card has contacted me, it, it, which is always amazes me because, of course, I think about the people I know, um, and the first thing I have to do, of course, is there's a tremendous pressure to play the name game whenever possible because you know, independent film, it just relies on getting some names in your movie, and then after that's over, then at least there's a. But offhand, there's just nothing from my friends. It's really frustrating. You know, 
All right. <laughs> hey, you're, you got a you got a gig, man. You you got your own show now. Yep. Yeah. I've got a couple shows. I got a couple more. So that, okay. actually, I want to me- mention something about Allison. He's right. He's the one person over the last I don't know twenty uh, twenty years. No matter where or who you are in in LA or New York, he's the one person that will always call you back. They'll always respond to your message emails. Always, you know, he's the only person that I sent my script to the first script that he he actually read it. I sent it to family members. Never, won't even read the first three pages. Alice read like the first 30 pages and gave me feedback on it. Nobody else will ever do. So Allison really is. He's a mensch for sure. Wow, that's amazing. That you're a mensch. Well, but I never knew that people were that negligent and selfish. But I do think that people lie, and I think that's the worst thing is that they Mm -hmm. um, is that people. um, Hold on one second. Podcast. Um, People. People, um, hold on a second. I'm, op- I'm opening a garage door from a friend who is delivering a Gettysburg, a Gettysburg battle scene for my kid. Okay. It's like a diorama of soldiers, and, and it's, 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 it's made of pewter. It's unbelievable. Um, I bet he's getting a part in your movie. <laughs> he <quit acting. laughs> he's happy. He quit acting. Um, oh. But um, no, but I. But one thing I have noticed, and and it's one of the real tragedies. Of artistic life out here is that people is that people lie constantly, and so they give their script to their friends, and no one's giving them any feedback that's helpful, and they they don't want to say anything that's and, and I am just the opposite. I just decide like what good am I? I think that's a Bob Dylan song. What use am I? What good am I if I if I'm just looking at people friends and lying to them? So I'm just very blunt, which in a funny way is sort of what I did in Billy's um, TV show was like, you know, yeah. given what I thought was semi-bitter medicine about, that, like, what I saw, even if I'm wrong, it's like what I saw is the truth. Instead of just going, wow, Billy saw your show, it's great, mm-hmm. you know, and then no one gets anything out of that. Yeah. Right. And I have trouble getting feedback, by the way. Like, I, I'm so, I have trouble feeling that I can give scripts to people and get, get what I really need, which is some strong, mm-hmm. objective criticism. Right. Right. You know. Um, so how are your shows going, Billy? Going pretty good. It's going, you know, things are, things are, you know, I've got a lot of good things going on, so I, I can't complain. And the National Geographic thing is that shows on the air. Did I send you the clips of the show of the episodes? I saw some early on. You sent me some. No, stuff. no, this, is the, this came out a couple of days ago. They're premiering the clips now on the National Geographic website. So no, it goes on October second, I believe. Wow. And you're doing it with Allison Eastwood, right? Allison Eastwood. Yep. Yeah. That's great. Oh, by the way, can you come on? Um, I think it's like this Saturday. They we're having a screening of a of a documentary out in Hidden Hills. Allison's going to come. Uh, my cousin Christina McClarty and her boyfriend David Arquette are coming. Hopefully, Joe Manganiello is going to come. Um, it's a documentary, but it's a it's an animal documentary, so you may not be interested in. But no, that's, a, that's not the problem. The problem is on weekends. I'm just, you know, I'm completely um, subsumed by parental duties, and gotcha. we don't go out. At, like we're so tired that we rarely stay awake past 9 o'clock. Chloe and I have been out at night after 8 o'clock it's at not night. Nighttime. In the last I'm sorry, buddy. It's at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, and I know, but I think during the day real... it's all about the kids, and then at night we just don't do anything. We're too tired. Okay. We just don't do it, literally anything. I mean, it's so okay. funny. Like, Except for like the premiere of a movie, that's like the only time that we, um, that we ever have ever left the house together when the sun's down. Um, but no, it, and in the Rennie afternoon, Harlan. it's all about the kids. Two executive producer, Rennie Harlan and Wolfgang Peterson. Plus, we're bringing three 100% of 
uh, DNA blood wolves that are rescued from Alaska for the kids to play with. You're kidding. Nope. God, wolves? Wolves, real ones. Wow. Not just agents. <laughs> no, 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 um. right. <laughs> well, send me the email. You never know. It's, I mean, 4 o'clock, you never know. Maybe if they, they yeah. think they're going to see a wolf, they'll take a trip to Hidden Hills. They might like okay. that. Okay, cool. Unless, uh, Billy, have you started your Kickstarter campaign yet? Nope, I haven't, just because I shot a video for it, um, the, the Kickstarter pitch, and I showed it to a few people and said, nope, terrible, you really got to go back to the drawing board, it's got to mm-hmm. be really, really good. So I thought I could I thought I could wing it, you know, and just get yeah. it, you know, but it, everybody said, no, 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 I, no. So I'm gonna, I hate I'm to be judgmental, but I just have these really negative feelings that have started up around Kickstarter, <laughs> Like, really? I don't, like, like, I, like, I'll tell you, like, I'll tell you how I feel about it. When I get something or I stumble upon something from, like, a folk singer in New York and she's 22 and, you know, she needs some money to start her album, I kind of go, oh, that's great, this kid out of college. And I see these kids that want to raise 6000 in Chicago to finish a movie, and I feel sentimental. But somehow when it's friends, and, like, I have friends who have, you know, real money, and they want, like, you know, four hundred thousand dollars to do to finish this movie i don't know i feel like my i I mean i'm not talking about you billy obviously i didn't even know you were doing it but in the past i get this feeling like people are begging or something i don't know like it gives me this i feel this terrible like i'm on the spot and so my own friend who i know has money in the bank is saying you know save me i don't know it bugs me i might i know i the other day i post on facebook and i said am i the only one you know that can't stand these kickstarter things and there was like just this tidal wave of people saying how much they couldn't stand it oh no great yeah. thanks, oh, Billy. thanks for being there yeah i know thanks for being there the paul revere of uh, my of the of my, but, but the no but if you career. like listen you just tell them like you know tell i mean i i feel like someone really needs it it's like i, I don't know how much money you have but i don't know where you are in life but i know people that i know are doing really well and they just want their friends to put the bill for their demo or whatever, and I just think it's weird. Anyway. Well, do you have any advice for Billy on how to raise money? Uh, um, he could sell his well, services. The only, way, the only way to do it is to prostitute yourself. You know I'll that. Stud, stud you services. <laughs> he could do his stud services, just trying to give out his DNA to the to yeah. the in, to the masses, to the girl women looking for a father. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's no. I mean, the best way I guess is to is to keep doing what he's doing and figure out a way to get the right acting job or the right work that will propel him or find a backer, you know, one backer. Right, right. Well, no, the Kickstarter thing is great. If you ask for $20 from a person to shoot a pilot, you know, the pilot costs fifteen grand, and we shoot a full 22-page pilot, for you know, for $20, you can't be that bad of a... No, that's not bad. I, I, I just no, don't know, like, well, you know, how many people would you need? I can't do the math in my head, but, you know, if if, if five people get you $100 and 50 people give you $1,000, then you need 750 people to get you 15000 bucks. Correct. You know, 750, five, a lot of people. I've got 400 friends on Facebook. I've got um, you know, a few thousand on Trouble Billy Facebook. I've got, uh, twi- you know, I've got all these people. Okay, well, maybe and you're I'm, right. Maybe, like, I never would resent giving someone 20 bucks. It's I, yeah, I guess I feel pressured to give, you know, 200 And often, okay. it's, it's, to me, it's all about who's asking and whether I think that, whether I know they have money or not. Mm-hmm. But I see people right. I know have money. They have like this cast of actors in their movie that make money, and they want, but they want the strangers to foot the bill. And it's just this weird feeling to me. Like, why don't you put your own ass on the line? Yeah, but it's like you, it's an entitlement or something. Yeah, that's right. But you clearly, 
Billy, sound like, yeah. you know, you're really scrambling to make this thing happen, and you're not asking for the moon either. No, he's right. not. Right. So no, Billy, you just, and you just have to promote it. You just have to get out there and promote it. Yeah, yeah make it look like so much fun that people want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. because it's, really, it's a really good concept, and it's really funny. That's wonderful. Yeah. And yep. we, we love Billy today. Yeah, we do. We do love Billy. Yeah, Billie. we do. He gets on our nerves, but we love him. Yeah, he's a pain in the neck, but he's adorable. He's I've, got two, I've got two words for you, Billy. Massage chairs. <laughs> Buy some massage chairs. Didn't you mention that last yes, week? Yes, I did. <laughs> he did. Yes, I he think did. of them every time I go to the car wash. I remember Billy telling me how much money there was in massage chairs, and I always put money in the massage chair while I'm waiting. Um, <laughs> he always had these great ideas. Oh, my God. I mean, funny he's ideas. He's a dreamer, so right? I've been I, I did the massage just before anybody. I got in like a couple of big, you know, national magazines about it. And then um and then I kind of it petered out and of course the next thing you know, you see every single I was trying to get my massage chairs in airports. Now you see them in every airport uh, around the United States as massage chairs. No, you are ahead of your time. You were. That's the <laughs> trouble was. with Billy. Yeah, yeah, that's the trouble with you. Yeah. That's the trouble with you. Well, Mr. Yep. yep, we appreciate you calling in. All right, I don't, I don't want to rain your parade. I promise you. Now I feel guilty. I'm definitely going to give you some money, Billy. I wasn't Yay. talking about you. I was talking about these rich Hollywood types I know who are trying to raise 400 grand and are like exploiting every fan of these actors that are in their movie. And it just seems weird to me. But anyway, that does seem weird. But since it's you, I'm, I, I wouldn't. You know, twenty dollars is like for the for the. You know, but for you, I'm going to ask for two hundred. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll stop in the middle. I'll give you 80. You give him an inch, right? <laughs> I'll give him 80, then I'll say candles and pray he doesn't get to the... All right, all right. You know, a lot of, we know what a lot of people do, though. It's like they say, they say they're raising 20000 and someone goes, oh, they're never going to make 20000 So they give, like, 100 bucks, and then, you know, with eight hours to go, they're at 9000 and they go, oh, great, I don't have to... But people always make it because they just go out and borrow the money, to, don't they? I mean, don't they just oh, go Oh, I didn't and, know that. That's well, I think idea. they must... I mean, they must because right. everyone makes it. It's just crazy. Like, my friend, everyone I know made it. Right. I don't know. Well, I mean, I did a budget for 15000 for a nine-day shoot. I'm shooting on weekends to get the equipment for free. And um, 15000 and nobody makes any money. So I have to pay the actors $100 a day, but I don't make any money. I get no salary for writing, directing, or acting in it. So Amazing. Okay, really well, that's, that's worthy. Okay. Yeah, it's really going to be a... That's definitely worthy. Yeah. Oh, All right, guys. We know you're going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. All right. It was good talking to you guys. I'll talk Take to you care of yourself. Right. Thanks for calling, Bye, Billy. Bye bye. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> the trouble with Billy. The trouble with Billy. Is this going to be a pilot of his of that show? I or a new so, show? Yeah. No, that show. Yeah. Okay, so the, everything he's done in video is sort of the rough draft, and then he's going to yeah. do like the yeah. polished version. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yep. So I don't know much about Kickstarter either. I know there's a goal, there's a, a set goal, and if they don't reach that goal, I don't think that. Yeah, but they almost always they reach it. I think they probably just get their parents to give the last six thousand or whatever to yeah. get them yeah. 
to the number. And then there's these people like writing this narcissistic crap about, you know, I'm recording my album and I'm, cons- mm-hmm. you know, my muse and my this and my that. It's so narcissistic. And they send you letters about their process and how you've contributed. And I, the whole thing has an unsavory feeling to me. It's, but it's I think society, some, though. Yeah, people are so I, self-absorbed. That's right. But I have given it to some people that I really thought were worthy. They were, I saw the clip of their movie. It's beautiful. It's really good. They're desperately poor. They need to finish it, and I feel great doing that. You know, yeah. but it's but those often are strangers, and they aren't LA people. Yeah. Right. Well, Jane, should we take uh, another call, or should we start go back let's, to questions? Let's, let's, let's do some questions. Okay. okay. All right, Al. So let's talk about writing a little bit. Um, when did you, I guess has writing always been a passion? Um, what? Yeah, I was. You know, I wrote. I wrote a lot in high school. I got to college. I wrote a lot. I won the playwriting contest at Northwestern. More and more writing was balanced with my acting, but more and more it was pulling me. And then I moved to New York. I graduated early from college, so I was only twenty. I was living in New York, and I got into a play. And the play was like a showcase thing, and it was kind of depressing and and awful. And I just made this decision that an actor's life was kind of a dog's life. Right. And that I really, I was more and more swept into the world, not only of writing, but of literature in general. Mm-hmm. And I just committed to literature. I just committed to playwriting. And I kind of never looked back, really. Never mm-hmm. regretted it. Never thought twice about it. And um, and then I'd say around 26, I just got cr- incredibly serious. Like, I just began working like a dog. Up to that point, I needed to be inspired, and I'd try to carve away the time, and I'd think, what am I going to write? And I was sort of tortured about what to write. And then once I hit 26, it all just fell into place, and I've never had writer's block. I've never had any anxiety about it. I do it every day, same schedule. You know, I find that that's what it's all about. It's like working out, you know, at the gym. You, You develop a schedule, you become completely addicted to it, and it just becomes a way of life. Well, when you're writing, I mean, does a story just kind of take over your life? Uh, well, what I always like to say, like, you know, after you do it for long enough, you have technique and you have craft. Yeah, kind of. And, right. Yeah, and that sort of becomes second nature. So mm-hmm. as I'm writing, I know unconsciously or consciously, I know the things I need to be doing that will set up interesting dynamics later. And so part of it is just the imagination running free, and mm-hmm. part of it is setting up machinery that you know are going to give you dividends later in terms mm-hmm. of plotting. Mm-hmm. Um, with do you do an outline or do you just I, I usually, it depends. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I kind of prefer working without one because it's more exciting mm-hmm. and I have more discoveries. But sometimes, you know, I pitched, I sold a pitch to New Line mm-hmm. Cinema a few months ago, which I've already delivered the movie. And, you know, I, I had to work it out in pretty pretty good detail or they would never have bought it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you're you're compelled to write an outline. Okay. Yeah. okay. But I'm not well, one of these what? people that maps it on a note cards and puts note cards all over the wall and is rearranging them and all that. I really like to proceed by intuition and emotion and with an innate sense of structure without – I really feel sorry for people that don't have a sense of structure because mm-hmm. and have to do it on note cards and stuff because it's it, – it, it, you know, William Goldman said – screenplays are structure that that is what they are is the echo skeleton you know of the whole thing and you have to you know you really have to know what you're doing and um anyway 
so so for me, um, I feel blessed that structure is something that comes easily to me. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Well, you kind of touched on this already, but what is your typical day like? Do you, you have a routine. Uh, I wake up at, at dawn. I, I'd like to wake up at you know quarter of six, but it's usually sometimes it's four fifteen because I have a three year old who has weird yeah. sleeping habits. Um, but I wake up very early and I I blast off with coffee, not a ton, but like three strong cups to really get me to blast off. And then I work really hard from dawn till lunch. And that doesn't mean that I don't check my email or take a phone call. It isn't like I'm maniacal. But I work and I do that, you know, six days a week. And I've done that for literally 20-something years. So that's why I get a lot done because I'm always Mm -hmm. working. Well, and it's and it's a joy. Like I'm I'm look, I'm excited when I wake up in the morning. I'm excited to get to work. Mm, that's yeah. That's what it's all well, about. Did your um, how did your or would you say I don't know maybe it didn't but how did your like uh, environmental upbringing did it impact your writing anyway like your childhood and well I've I've written about, yeah I mean as much as anyone else I think I mean I've mm-hmm. you know I had you know my father was a brilliant alcoholic who was dead by the time I was twenty. And my mother is a therapist who um, I think is off her rocker. And I think that, that you know, all that pain certainly gave me plenty to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the chaos around me made me able to put things into order and make order out of chaos. So I think at a young level it really helps to have an intolerable reality around you because it makes you withdraw into your imagination yeah. and start to put order on things and 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 um you know organize organize chaos which is what I think I did um but you know that's the way and, you know and having a father who's a scientist and and very literate and books everywhere mm-hmm. all of that certainly contributed sure okay. sure and they supported the arts completely. We could do anything we wanted that was creative, and they would support well, it. Oh, you're lucky that you're very yeah. lucky that your parents supported you like that. Yes. Um, what do you feel was your most important your most important professional accomplishment to date? It's a very. What are you point. most proud of? What am I most proud of? Yeah. Any I would movie, have to book, say. Um, I would have to say, you know, the trilogy of <laughs> novels. Like I, I'm, I'm very proud of BK Troop and those three books. Um, again, I don't know. It's not like they're they're acclaimed or anything. You know, the people that love them really love them. But the, you know, the literary community at large doesn't even know they exist. But I think they they have a certain um, originality and intelligence, and I think that they have a chance of enduring in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think there, and Death by Sunshine in particular, which is the third book, um, I think the character of BK Troop has evolved. And by the time you get to that third novel, I think that book is fairly accomplished. Um, but you know, I'm very proud of Red Meat because I was had no money, we had very little money and very little time. And you know, there's other things I've done that I'm proud of, but I think the trilogy probably. Okay. We haven't read those yet, but we're going. To. No, yes, we, we're guilty as charged. We have not well, read they're, they're the trilogy. I guarantee you, they're loads of fun. They're not. There's not. They're not boring for a second. And I find a lot, honestly, I find a lot of contemporary fiction incredibly boring. Oh, and, yes. and I just find it slow, or I find it obvious, or it's mm-hmm. like reading a TV movie, or it has no 
no joy of language or the plotting is slow or like you're reading a Philip Roth novel and it breaks into a 40-page essay right mm-hmm. in the middle of the book about the history of Newark or something. And I don't do any of that. I really, I'm more in the, the Dickens tradition where mm-hmm. like you, you, where there's a lot of humor, a lot of humanity, and you tell a story. And, right. the, and the meaning and the profundity is expressed through story and not expressed through essay. Mm-hmm. and pontificating and so i really so i'm trying I, it's an english style of fiction more so where with a you know a strong story and a love of language so i think you'll you'll find that the books are not they're not homework they're enjoyable well we're, we're, looking, yeah, we're looking forward to it yeah uh, i i just have a, this one question about red meat mm-hmm. and i might it, my imagination might be running wild but mm-hmm. when when the movie uh first opens and the uh, Stefan and Chris are going into the um, the restaurant. There's a sign. It says Soul Food. Mm-hmm. Is that any? Is this, was that any? Uh, well, was that first of all, it was always it, it, soul. A, I don't know. Just the word. Yes, that, soul. that's a real soul food restaurant. That's a real. Now we shot. Believe it or not, the entire restaurant was a set, but the exterior was a real restaurant called Greens and Things, and it was mm-hmm. a soul food restaurant. And once they step inside, we just matched the windows and the neon and built a set that matched the actual windows and door and neon of that restaurant. So it, it's completely – I mean, you, you never for a second doubted you were in a real place, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? No, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great set. But anyway, um, but the fact that they're eating in a soul food restaurant, absolutely. Uh-huh. was intentional in every conceivable way. And when she says, when the black screenwriting partner says, you're just going to be one more angry white man full of lies and screwing <laughs> and hatred, I mean, you know, that they're really represent. I mean, that's what killed me when some people, some very <laughs> ignorant people saw the movie and thought it was misogynistic. I thought, oh, my God, what a joke. The movie could not be more categorically horrified by the misogyny of these guys and, yeah, no, and, and sympathetic and mm-hmm. and sad and, and I mean the movie is an, is an examination of misogyny, but it in no way endorses them. I mean, well, the last what I few, liked was yeah. What I was just going to say, there was such a sharp contrast between Stefan's Stefan and Chris, and then you have Victor's story, which you know just come away with a sense that you know love is is everything, you know and yeah. So, yeah, it was, and, and, I, the, and, and these two guys at the end are looking through bars like prisoners, mm-hmm. yes. yeah. and, and they look like prisoners. And he's saying, wouldn't it be great, you know, if he was a liar and he made that story <laughs> up just to get laid, then he'd be my hero, he says. Yes. I mean, what is more bitter and ironic line. and sad yeah. than that, you know? They're but, you know, if Christopher had said, hey, you know what, man? I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Why don't you go your separate way? I'm going to hang out with Victor. You can go home. Then the movie would have probably been twice as successful because mm-hmm. it would have let people go to sleep at night and gone, oh, the world is happy a beautiful ending. place. Yeah, mm-hmm. happy ending. And instead, Christopher, who's right on the cusp, goes, okay, and he gets up and ambles out with his friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So it is, a, it is a sad, serious adult ending, which is not something yeah. that's, you know, smiled upon in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I have a lighter, lighter question here. Mm-hmm. I have a late question here. Okay. What is your guilty TV pleasure? Ah, oh, it's a good question. <laughs> I have so many. Um, well, but they're not what you'd imagine. I love American Pickers. 
Oh, I like that show. Oh, I love it. Because I love old things. I collect. I, I do too, yeah. Yeah, I collect antiques. And I, I mean, not so much. I collect ephemera. You know, mm-hmm. I collect paper, letters, um, photographs, autographs, all that stuff from the Depression era on. And I have, I'm staring at many binders right now filled with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love old stuff in, in any way. So that that's probably my number one favorite show. Um, I watch anything to do with real crime. Mm-hmm. I love for, my, the first 48 is yeah, my favorite like um, sort of crime show, and I'm completely hooked on that. And real and first 48 um, missing persons I also like. Anything with true crime. I love, you know, 2020, um, Dateline, anything. With the, Chloe and I call it the spousal murder shows. You know, it's mm-hmm. always somebody killing their spouse, and we just yeah. can't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watch a ton of sports, usually because I can read scripts and do other things while it's on, but I watch every Cleveland Indians game, every Browns game, every Cavaliers game. Um, and is there anything? Oh, I, I love Workaholics. That's my new favorite yeah. comedy. And, you know, I watch a lot of shows that other people watch, but they're not really guilty pleasures. Um, you mean you don't watch the Kardashians? I'm shocked. Chloe I'm just shocked. Lot. Chloe watches a lot of that stuff, you know, and I just crack up. I used to watch Project Runway. I stopped. Oh, oh I, I love Tim. Oh, Tim Gunn is awesome. I, I used to love it. I just try. I really honestly try to cut down on. I think reality show is very, shows are very addictive, and I kind of try to oh, cut yeah, down on them. Really um, you know, I used to watch Pawn Stars, and I stopped. I just try to keep focused on the things I. Um, mm-hmm. I like them. So I love Californication. I always watch that. Oh, yeah. I watch Charlie Sheen's show because oh, yeah, we're fr- anger management. We're friends with yeah. him. And, oh, um, are you? Oh. Yes, and he's just one of the funniest cool. people I've ever met in my life. Do you like it? Is it a good show? So um, the show is well. I mean, I really laugh. You know, it, it, it's. I think it's way better than Two and a Half Men. Um, I, re- I really enjoy the show. I mean, Charlie in real life is probably funnier, but it's still, I really enjoy it. Okay. All right, so let's go back to a serious question for a moment. Um, okay, I know, like, a lot of times in films, you know, you can't, like, you're, okay, let's say you're writing a screenplay, you write the screenplay, and what shows up, you know, after the movie's done is very different than your original screenplay. And Constantly. So, yeah, so I guess it's harder to maintain your authentic voice uh, with your characters. Uh, in a screenplay as opposed to a novel. There's no comparison. Mm-hmm. I've been very blessed because a lot of the movies I've written have been, um, they. I have a, the man that runs Lakeshore Entertainment that does a lot of my movies has preserved the script and doesn't mess with it that much, sometimes mm-hmm. very little. I mean, there's a process during which I change tons of things to the specifications of him or to the directors or whoever, but once they start shooting, there aren't, because those changes you make on the set are the really disastrous ones because those are the ones that are made without any writer oversight or any thought or any Mm -hmm. perspective. Um, So I've had it less bad than others. I think the script I wrote that was the most shredded and changed, for which I still received sole credit almost inexplicably, was Fame. Um, That bears very little resemblance to what I wrote. There are whole scenes and monologues that were mine, but the overall feeling is just completely different. Mm. And most of it, most of it is actually deletion, not changing. It's just whole things, so many things taken out that you know it barely reflects it. But um, but I'd say Feast of Love was very close 
to what I wrote. Very, very, oh, very little changed. And anything that changed was like in the first ten minutes. Okay. Um, and I didn't write the voiceover. Um, but, um, you know, uh, ironically, under, in Underworld Awakening, I was the last writer. So a lot of the stuff I wrote was shot verbatim, which was okay. nice. Um, but sometimes you have something that you write and they shoot every word exactly as you wrote it, mm-hmm. but it's still not what you wrote. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go into specifics because it's too mm-hmm. fresh, but, you know, sometimes, you know, you write something that, that's a story about one thing and it's depicted in a very intense way mm-hmm. and they keep the lines, but it's all off. And it has to do with the way it's cast. It has to do with the way it's directed and shot and the makeup and the actors and all that kind of stuff. And then you look at it and you, you don't feel like it's really what you intended. Right, right. So I love screenwriting. I have fun. It's, it's, it supports my family. It's really enjoyable. But I don't look to films for authorship, for a feeling of authorship. Sometimes mm-hmm. I get it, but it's not what I look for. Yeah. I, I, I look to... Directing and writing novels for that. Writing novels, yeah. yeah. All right, well, Jane, do you want to get into I think we're going to take more callers. Yeah, if they're waiting, we should. Do that. They're waiting. Okay. Uh, Area code 404. You're on the air. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm Joe Spaziarello from New York. uh, Uh, New York. I'm driving on the Van Wick. uh, I'm in my Iraq Grand Dam with the rear spoiler. (laughs) And uh, I heard a rumor on Mad Dog Show that the Browns just signed LeBron James to league minimum and uh, promise of another announcement, and then uh, maybe even a gold medal. What are you? What are your thoughts on that signing? We're not cruelty. When I, you know, you can't keep secret who it is if you say 404, because I only know one human being on earth. Hey, Rick. Oh darn, we blew it. Hey. Hey, buddy. Oh well. What's yeah, up, that, did, that, that didn't work out. What's up, Al? You poor son of a bitch. You had to sit there and listen to me for an hour. Um, no, it wasn't that long, actually. Okay. Hey, by okay. the way, I read History of Newark, and it was a damn good read, okay? So <laughs> don't make fun of the History of Newark. Uh, American pastoral that has whole sections of the History of Newark. It's actually the history of the tanning industry in Newark, <laughs> and so it's really deadly boring in the middle of an otherwise great book. Um, so, well, uh, there's yeah. your next uh, reality show, by the way. Tanning show in Newark. <laughs> history of tanning in Newark. Newark. Could be. There's a rich history of tanning. Um, so, God, you found Rick. How did you do that? Facebook. Uh. Our page. <laughs> what? We just stopped Facebook. Facebook page. He, he, your Facebook. To us. he got I right back to us. I he found you. No, no, they found no. me. They, they found you. They uh, they reached out to me. I don't know how they knew that we were even good friends, but uh, we have no um, idea. We're psychic. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a now, how long have we known each other for? About uh, I think it's 20. 22 years now. That sounds right. That sounds right. I was 11 and you were 12. Yes, exactly. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, Rick. I've worked with Rick. Uh, he, Rick makes great sports documentaries and is a, and has been writing is writing scripts based on one of them and uh and I helped him sort of finish a couple of them just gave him advice at the end of the process after he was mm-hmm. done shooting mm-hmm. um and uh I I'm I doggedly try whenever I can to get people in Hollywood to watch them because right, but I can't good. finish a script without Allison you know tearing it apart for me which is great I love that so 
I, we we talked before about honesty and how so few people yeah, we read scripts and are honest, and I'm really honest with Rick. And, yeah. um, but that's the only way you have to be. Um, but uh, it's hard to get people to watch sports documentaries in Hollywood because, you know, even though sports movies every now and then will make a fortune, like Blind Faith or Blind Side, um, a lot of, you know, they just, a lot of them don't make money. Yeah. And so it's hard to get sports movies off the ground. Yeah. So Rick's crazy for what he does. That's basically what he's saying. No, I love, I love that. But I mean, I love sports movies. I love, and I love those ESPN documentaries. And Rick's movies are really good. I recommend them. Can they get the um, Faded Glory on Netflix? Uh, well, you know, we need more queue ups on Netflix in order for Netflix to buy it. So you can go queue it up. But if you want to buy it, you got to go to NEHST. Dot com that stands for Next Studios, which is our distributor, and then just go to the store and look it up. Uh, oh, yeah. is a producer on that. Yeah, and it's um, a really good movie. It's it's about a group of guys who've known each other for years who get together to to play in the Amateur World Series. I'm sorry, the is that what it's, what it's called? Over forty five. Yeah, National Amateur Baseball World yeah. Series. Yeah, it's thirty five. Yeah, so they and play hardball. And so it's this whole generation of these, you know, handsome jocks who used to be best friends or buddies who played together. And 20 years later, they're out trying to win the World Series, and they're playing in empty stadiums in the middle of Arizona. It's it's just amazing. And they play with all, and they all have surgeries and scars and bruises and aches. And they're playing for this trophy. And it's like the it's sort of like the big chill in a way. You know, it's people getting back together, and they've all had amazing lives and stories. And it's really good. It's great for. Film fans, but any baseball fans are going to love it extra. Well, Allison and I have been trying to get some studio to pick it up for a feature, and Allison to write it. So, mm-hmm. if anybody's out there listening, and you want to see a great movie and you want to turn it into a great feature, right, Al? That's yeah, the one. I totally agree. I think it would make a great movie, and you could cast the hell out of it because you've got all these great male actors over forty who are jocks, you know, who'd love to play baseball. I mean, you know, Charlie Sheen would be perfect. You know, these guys that yeah. love baseball. Major League, yes. He yeah. was great in Major he League. He was great in um, And they can even be a little bit broken down, and it's even funnier mm-hmm. and better because they, they don't have to be perfect jocks. They're guys that have, you know, lived lives. And Rick, hey, Al, can, can I plug okay. my new website where all my films are? Sure, go ahead. Sure. EndorphinEntertainment.com. Really that simple. We just launched our new website. It's got all the films that we made in sports movies. It's got trailers, links, articles. Um, there's even a picture of you and me on there, Al. How oh, cool. And, His uh, last movie, yeah, uh, right? A Fate of Glory, is, I mean, um, A Season of a Season Lifetime, of life. is about a uh, a football coach, high school football coach, coaching his last season as he die, uh, is battles ALS. Oh, wow. And it's heartbreaking. It's this great coach teaching these kids as his powers of speech are diminished and his ability to walk is diminished, and you follow him in his last season. And his son has spina bifida, too. Yeah, I thought I'd leave that out for now. I didn't want to overwhelm him. But it's not as depressing as it sounds. It's really quite beautiful and has a lot of humanity. humanity. Well, Well, you can get rid of me, guys, and go back (laughs) to hell. Well, we appreciate you calling. It's fun hearing your voice, Rick. Yeah, always fun, man. I hope to see you soon. Cool. Take care, ladies. Okay, bye-bye. thanks Jen, for calling Thank in. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Rick's a dynamo. He never stops working or hustling. He works very, very hard. 
the way to be. Yeah. Um, Want to take another call? Gonna, yeah, that we. And then we'll just sure we'll just talk about undiscovered girls. Yeah, yeah. that'll be fun. Okay, let's, right, let's talk. Uh, Christy, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Christy. Hi, girls. How are you? Fine. Hi, Allison. Who is this? This is our friend this Christy. Is, this is our She's friend terrific. Christy. Ah, oh, I thought it was my friend Christy. That's quite the strange because any time I call in to the blog talk radio shows, I either get I'm either their friend Christy or I am the actress Christy Clark. Christy. And who's Christy yeah. Clark? So I'm not her, but who I get confused. She? They think that I, I am her. I, She's I don't a soap opera. Oh, she's a really sweet girl. She's she's a really sweet lady, and and oh, my hats off to her. But no, I'm I'm neither. I'm just uh, Jane and Tasha's friend uh, right. from Oregon. What, what, what town? A, a what Salem. Town oh, my, Salem. My brother, my brother lives in Ashland. Beautiful. Yeah. I go down there. Um, they have the Oregon Cabaret Theater there. Well, if you're ever wandering around town through the park and you see a guy teaching Tai Chi outside, that's my brother. <laughs> he teaches outside. Oh, okay. he, doesn't have an, he doesn't have a dojo or an office. He just teaches in the, outside in the park. Wonderful. And, and he sings, yeah. and he's a singer-songwriter, and he's in all the clubs and bars and cafes. He's like this, the, 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 elder, the elder statesman of the, the busking uh, coffee shop world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so has he ever been uh, or taken part in the Oregon Cabaret Theater down there? No, because he's more like a he's more like a Paul Simon, James Taylor kind of. Oh, okay, guy. Wonder- Ooh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So he's good. Well, I I read somewhere that you uh, collect miniature farm animals. How did you get a start in that? I, I don't know. I love miniatures, and my case, my display case, is now gone beyond the farm and has zoo and circus. And, <laughs> Are you and a has, hoarder? Are you a and, no, I'm hoarder. really promised. That's one thing I'm not. I hate, like, tons of clutter. Everything's really nice, and my wife has great taste. Everything's sort of beautiful, but I, but, um, but I just love little stuff. I don't collect anything big. Um, and I, it all started, like, 30 years ago. I bought three little, like two kids and a parent waiting at a bus stop, or maybe it was waiting at a train station. I don't know. They were probably from a train station. And um, they were miniatures, and I just thought, these are interesting. And then I saw a lamb one day, and then a cow with a swap meet. And I learned, oh, they're called Britons. And I, and I didn't know that Britons were these collectible things. And eventually I stumbled into an antique store that had a case of them, and the man taught me the Britons company made these toys out of, they were like an alloy metal, and they were painted in the 40s. 30s and 40s and 50s and and I just whenever I saw them I'd pick them up and the next thing I knew I have a whole case of them big case and that's that's why I just love miniatures. Wow, I have from my great grandmother. She used to collect the miniatures that came out of the teas when you bought the the tea. Oh really? Oh, are they? What do they look? What are they? Are they cartoon characters? No, they're actually like animals, like dogs and and cats and things like that. And they're they're ceramic. They were little little ceramic ones. Oh, because I have metal ones that came out of the cocoa in England. 
They came out of the ah. chocolate, and they're beautifully painted metal ones of, of these sort of magical animals, and they even have a Dick Tracy motif, and, and oh, all of wow. them Brutus and Wimpy, and, but it's the same idea. It's like, it, they, that's how they were sold. You know, they came in tea and chocolate, and amazing. So yours are ceramic. There must be very, have you ever, do you ever look them up on eBay? Yeah, I have, and there really isn't too much of a of a thing for them. And even even if somebody were to tell me they were, you know, five hundred a piece, uh, to me they're more sentimentally worth yeah. more than than the value. And they're put up, um, and they're they're just they're just the neatest little things. Um, that sounds great. And, I would love if you oh. emailed me a picture of them. I love the yes. interest. Oh, I, love I could do that. I, I could definitely that. do that. What is? You'll have to um, give the girls their email. Yes, I am. Okay, well then, just add me on. You know, just click on me on Facebook, and we'll be Facebook friends. Aww. All right, that'll that'll work. Great. I'll do that. She's a caterer too. She's a great cook. Oh, how nice. Yes, I, I, I'm. Well, I, I, I would hope that I'd be a decent cook. So, but yeah, I, I do uh, big weddings and uh, personal dinners. So. Well, that's great. Wow. It must be nice living in Salem. Did you have any, huh? It must be nice living in Salem. Oh, it has its moments. <laughs> <laughs> just like every other just like every other capital of a state does. Yeah. Um, so do you happen to have any favorite dishes? In terms of, like, just basic favorite foods, you mean? Yeah, just your basic favorite dish. I, w- I love um, uh, carbonara sauce on pasta. Like fettuccine carbonara, I love a great carbonara sauce. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, and it's very uh, hard to get it done right, you know, because I guess originally, I think it's what is it? It's it's like cheese and cream and and I think egg yolk or something and bacon. Yes. Um, and, and it, it takes a good a good one will take you um, anywhere on average from two to six hours, depending on how well you want the sauce. The flavors to meld together. Amazing. Yeah, I, I know it's hard to make, and you don't see it very often um, in restaurants. And and it was it got its name because the coal burners, the carbonara were the coal burners, and they were like a revolutionary group in Italy. And this is how they liked their pasta. Yes, that's all I know. Um, but I don't eat a lot of. You know, you reach a certain age, and you don't just eat. You know, if I had my way, I would probably eat bread and pasta. That's probably all I'd eat. And so I almost never eat it ever, you know, and and I have really like boring gluten free meals. <laughs> a lot oh, of rice. Yeah. I only live once. Enjoy. I know. I know. I just don't. I just don't <laughs> think. Allison. I just don't want to be like a, you know, a fat old man. Or you won't be a fat old man. Well, you eat never, all the par- you eat all the carbs you want. Things happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Christy, we appreciate you calling in and your questions. Thanks, Christy. Oh, you're very welcome, and it was it was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it was really fun. I look forward to seeing the photo. Oh, great. Cool. Yeah. Bye, Christy. You're a sweetheart. Bye. Have a great okay, day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. That's it for callers, I think. I'm just right. looking. I'm just checking the switch. We have a switch a switchboard here. So I want to talk uh, about something for a second, because I know you said what? we were going to talk about Undiscovered Girl. And Absolutely. One thing I, I, I don't want to forget about, because I think this is kind of exciting, is that I've decided that the soundtrack of the movie mm-hmm. is only going to be young, undiscovered female singer-songwriters. 
Oh, I love that. Wow. So, and I mean young. That's... I mean, I want them to mm-hmm. be literally like 21 and younger. Mm-hmm. So we have a website that's going to sort of announce what we're looking for and where to send songs. But I want girls in high school and college who sing and write their own music and have a point of view, and they don't have to be, you know, world class. I just want some. I want the sincerity of that. Um, and we have a website, and it says where to send the MP3 files of your music, and it's undiscoveredgirlsearch.com. Okay. And the girl is G-Y-R-L. So it's undiscoveredgirlsearch.com. And and any spaces is one word? Excuse no me? No spaces. Well, say that again? Undiscovered girl, no spaces? Just no spaces. Never. One, okay. you, can, you can never have a space in an oh, in I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, unless you I can have a hyphen. Something. You can have a hyphen and you can have underline. an underlined space, right. but you can never have a space. Undiscoveredgirlsearch.com. And and it'll be up in the next couple of days, and the contest or the, the whatever you want to call it runs until October, uh, January first. Okay. And we we suggest if people want to spend you know a dollar and buy the book used, that they read the book, as that they might know which songs are the most appropriate, or right. that they have, or they might even want to write a song. So that's my hope and my dream is that we get enough submissions that we can have, we can make that the soundtrack. Okay. That's that's incredible. That's incredible. It could really be fun. I heard, I got the idea because I, I stumbled onto some girl on Twitter, and she had a track, and I listened to it. I said, "God, this is beautiful!" And it turned out like the first thing she'd ever recorded, and she was 16. And I thought, "Wow, this would be great for the movie. What a great idea!" And then Rick, actually Rick's daughter, is like 15 years old, lives in in Atlanta, and is really, really talented. And he sent me a song, and I couldn't believe it. And I said, my God, there are a lot of girls out there. I've just got to yeah. find a way to yeah. reach them. Yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. let's get to Undiscovered Girl, which is mm-hmm. just so special and touching. It's, uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, how were you able to get into the mind of a 17-year-old teenager? I mean, how were well, you able, I able to, to get to the mind of so a middle-aged? At it. I get to the mind of a middle-aged fat gay man um, for my other three novels. <laughs> yeah. so, so I like to believe I'm a little bit of a chameleon. Um, whenever people ask me why I write so many female characters, and I really made my living based largely on doing that, I always tell them that I, I my secret is that when women talk, I, um, I actually listen to them. Um, which I know is a radical notion among men, but I've always listened to women. I've always been I've always been really interested in what women say and what they feel and who they are. And um, I, you know, I based it on a girl I knew uh, who was 18 years old, who was living recklessly, and she was incredibly funny and charming. Mm-hmm. And you know, she used to do run errands for me and stuff um, years back. And every now and then she would call me, and I was at a place in my life where I was sort of between relationships, and, you know, I was just kind of, you know, being a lonely, pathetic bachelor in my 40s, and she would call and tell me all about her life, and I'd think, God, why am I listening to this? Like, I'm a grown man. I certainly, I must have something better to do. And yet she was so beguiling and charming and sympathetic, and I would hear about her and her friends' adventures. And then, you know, one day when the writer's strike hit, uh, we were all picketing. We, none of the screenwriters could write. Were allowed to write screenplays because we were on strike. And I thought, God, wouldn't it be great to write another novel and one that wasn't a BK Troop book, but something different? And and her voice just came into my head, mm-hmm. and I just started thinking about her and about the girls I see. I, I you know I, I started reading a lot of blogs. And I'm fascinated by the whole world. I feel like I could write an internet novel a year. I think the world of the internet is just filled with great 
potential for storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so this all just sort of came together, and I, and I knew the minute I started writing, I knew the ending. I knew what this was basically going to be. Um, and I just channeled it. I never thought I, – I was aware that it was a risky thing to do and mm-hmm. that if I did not pull it off, it would be a, I'd make a fool of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, in the whole time the book was out, I got one letter – telling me, how dare you, you have completely missed, it's bogus, it's fake, it's bull, I don't believe Katie for a second, and the letter was from a man in his 50s. Mm -hmm. And I got so many letters from girls Mm -hmm. who loved Katie and thought of her as a completely living person. So that felt good. The story is really relatable, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, she's a compelling... And you, you, yeah, and you just care about her, and you want her to be okay. Mm-hmm. She just really gets to you. Yeah, well, I hope <laughs> really that the, the, the secret to the movie is going to be, the whole movie is going to hinge on making that happen again in a movie. And it's hard to do because it's filtered through an actress, and we have to get the perfect person that, that mm-hmm. inspires that in the viewer. Mm-hmm. So what is your casting process now? Where are well, you just, at, well, at that point? We, I can't name names. I wish I could. Sure. But we were very, very dangerously close to getting a movie star to play the part. And, um, you know, she's a star, and she's really interested, but it may not work out. And so in the meantime, we're going full steam ahead uh, looking at actresses. And, a, and most of them will be complete unknowns because there really aren't that many young actresses who can play 18. Mm-hmm. Who are who are sort of well known? So you know, I've seen girls' pictures and resumes from girls on TV shows that you know that just look perfect. So I'm just going to meet everybody, and we have a great casting director, a well-known one, and we're going full steam ahead. I'm just going to start meeting. It's all going to start happening next week. Oh, great, great. Well, there are there's three beautiful videos of. Uh, Undiscovered Girl. I mean, if, if our listeners want to go, just type in on YouTube "Undiscovered Girl" and you'll see the uh, teasers for yeah, for the those book. Were all made in support of the book. Wonderful, just wonderful. And um, your father-in-law didn't he film one yeah. of the uh, one of the videos? He did, and it was Incredible. funny because he had footage that he had shot and never knew what he was going to do with it of mm-hmm. this girl that was just so perfect. Mm-hmm. To, to sort of suggest Katie. So he essentially just did a quick interview with me and intercut it with shots of this gorgeous girl. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a Katie quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you give our listeners just a little, like a brief synopsis of, of, of the uh Well, of you know, book. it's like it's a, you, really what you're doing is you're entering the life of a girl, um, of a blonde, blue-eyed, pretty girl that's taken a year off uh, before college starts. And she, her mom has a boyfriend, and her mom's kind of distracted from parenting by this new man in her life that she's eventually going to become engaged to. And Katie's sort of off in the world, and she goes and gets a job, and she's trying to, you know, have a meaningful year. And meanwhile, she has a dad who's, who's dying of alcoholism, who mm-hmm. gives her no nurturing at all. And she has a, a boyfriend who's her age that leaves her cold, who is, um, you know, just doesn't move her and excite her the way older men do. And he's in a rock band, and he's a jealous, and he, he's a jealous lunatic a lot of the time, and for good reason. And then she has uh, a boyfriend that she has not slept with yet named Dan, who's in his early 30s that she's mm-hmm. messing around with. 
and thinking of sleeping less. And she's so, and then everything just begins to escalate, and her life gets more complicated, more dangerous. The men get older. The things she takes on, and and she, her beauty and her youth and her unconsciousness start to really trigger a lot of deep, angry feelings in men. And she's living in a way that's really reckless, and then this all leads to sort of a shocking conclusion, I guess. Yeah. But she's never self-pitying. She's never self-pitying. She's never, you know, even when she's funny, even when she's depressed, she opens her heart a lot. And I think that her spirit is what keeps the book going and it never becomes sort of like a pretentious drag And because she's so full of spirit. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. I mean, she's, she's very real. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, uh, with you being able to write her in such a way that, I mean, you really feel like, you know, Katie wrote, wrote the blog. Mm-hmm. But it's it's amazing. When the first time the publisher's proofreading department got this, the novel, they sent it back and they had corrected every single typo. <laughs> These idiots. I mean, it was so obvious that they were mm-hmm. intentional. And right. I had to go back and I mean, maybe maybe ten of them were real typos and all the rest were all Katie's mm-hmm. typos. And I had to go back and like circle them all and say, We're st-, you know, this is you know, it's awful. Um but yeah, I, I figure if the girl's blogging we have to be somewhat realistic about her verbal abilities and I, I just let it go, you know, I didn't I didn't question any of it. Yeah. I just didn't 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 censor it. Well, I know so you say in the book, Katie says complete honesty is a complete lie. Uh, she doesn't say it, actually. Paul Spooner says it. Oh, that's right. Paul said right. it. That's right. Yeah, she gets a list of adult truths by this older man, gives her a list of truths that he thinks, you know, are what are things kids don't know that are mm-hmm. true about adult life, and that's one of them. That one stuck with me. Um, that stuck with me. Right, what stuck with me was... Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of most girls will relate to any you know some aspect of of Katie. I I was brought to tears a couple of times because uh there were some similarities uh with my relationship with my dad when I was little. We had a, a great relationship. You know, it was very affectionate and actually, you know, he smoked Kent cigarettes too. Uh-huh, that great. freaked me out, Allison. <laughs> that just freaked me out. And That's being great. an only child, uh, and then when she was describing her dad's funeral, and she said, how does an only child cry at her dad's funeral and everybody's staring at her? Yeah. That's what I went through. And it was wow. just, it was so realistic. It was just, I just, my heart went out to her, and I went, oh, my God, you know, this does happen to other people. It's just, <laughs> it was just incredible. Just oh, incredible. Thank you so much. Well, it's frustrating. This is another example of a book that if it had had a happy ending or a crystal clear ending, mm-hmm. um, it would have sold a zillion copies because girls mm-hmm. were loving it, but there were just too many people that got so shaken up at the mm-hmm. end. You know, it's like you pay a real price when you do that. Mm-hmm. You know, people really, a lot of people look to the arts just to give them comfort, and it's very just hard for them to deal with an ending that is not... Um, even if you think of movies that you might have loved, like, I don't know if you've seen, like, uh, Body Heat or mm-hmm. Jacob's Ladder, like, movies that a lot of film buffs love, they didn't do mm-hmm. very good. They didn't do well at the box office. Mm-hmm. Right. People don't want 
the ending of Body Heat when he realizes he's yeah. been an idiot. You know, yeah. it's very rare that movies like that, mm-hmm. you know, do well. Uh, mm-hmm. and they, and it, I mean, very well. Um, because people really want to be ingratiated. They want yeah. the work of art to be ingratiating, and they want to be pleased, and they want to be comforted. And, and some, you know, I, I'm not like that. I remember, you know, like the end of The Graduate. I love that. You remember the end of The Graduate? Where they they uh, run away from the church, Dustin yes. Hoffman rescue, yes. you know, yes. and yes. they get on the bus, turn. and they're uh-huh. in the back of the bus, and then suddenly they're just sitting there, and their eyes go kind of dull, and they're just sort of staring at this endless future. You don't know <laughs> what the hell's going to happen next, and it just slams to black. You know, I love stuff like that. In the 70s, it was pretty common. Mm-hmm. And then, boy, do we live in a different uh, age now. Yeah, yeah. Also infantile now. Not to be shallow or anything. Can we have a sequel, please? No, I'm only kidding. Listen, if there had been a great... We want more. If there had been a great groundswell... If there had been a great groundswell, I had ideas, a sort of really interesting idea for kind of a scary thriller sequel, mm-hmm. but I never got around to it because nobody cared. Mm-hmm. We care. Right when yeah, we, we do. <laughs> the we the want, book sold more. a whopping, you know, 12,000 copies or something. Mm-hmm. Well, we that's, it's it's such a good book. I can't believe that. I, uh, I, got one, I think I got one review in the press in the L.A. Times, which is a great, great review, Mm-hmm. And then and then tons of blogs reviewed it, literary blogs, right. young girl blogs, but mm-hmm. they didn't even submit it to most newspapers. I mean, they really, they just thought, oh, it's a kid's book, it's a YA book, let's mm-hmm. give it to the kids to read, and the blog girls will read it, but I wrote it for grown-ups. I didn't write it for teenagers. Yeah. yeah. That's what's funny. I mean, I, have, I know men in their 60s that love the book, absolutely mm-hmm. loved it, mm-hmm. but they would never pick that book up in a million years because of the cover. You know, mm-hmm. you see a girl like that on the cover, and you just assume right. it's a, a young adult right. book. Yeah. Well, yeah, Tasha, we have 15 minutes left. Oh, wow. And I think we have another caller, and we also have, like, a, a few more questions. I don't know how what you want to do. Do you have any idea how many people listen to you guys? Well, last week, uh, or Billy's uh, interview, almost 2,000 people have listened. Amazing. That's amazing. Um, they usually, they, I think they listen to the archived uh, yeah. Shows this guy was the, featured too, though. But this was featured, yeah, Tasha. Yeah. This was featured by Blog Talk Radio. Ah. So yeah. you're special, Allison. That's great. Okay. That's great. All right, um, let's take the other caller. And then we let's get take it. the other caller. Yeah, I think it's. Um, let's see. Oh. This is, hello, uh, area code four seven nine. Hi. 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 Hey, it's Lenita. <laughs> oh, well, hi, I'm calling Lenita. Hi, hi, sweetheart. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Where are you, you Lenita? Know, I haven't heard him talk about his struggle yet as far as um, getting his very first break, you know, in the screenwriting and everything. So I would love to hear uh, how I that Oh, I got struggle about. story. Where are you calling from, Lenita? <laughs> Arkansas. Oh, what town? Uh, near Fayetteville. I've Fayetteville. been there. I've been Have there. Have you really? That's yes, in great. fact, in fact, there's a character from Fayetteville in my novel Death by Sunshine. There's oh, a mother and daughter from Fayetteville, which he um, in in that book. Um, yeah, my friend taught there at the university for years. Oh yeah, yeah, they're big into football here. <laughs> well, he 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 taught history 
and I spent yeah. the I spent two nights there, and we drove around everywhere, and I loved it. I really loved it. Yeah, um, it's very beautiful. Real America. Um, so my struggle, well, you know, so I what happened was in my twenties, living in New York. Um, you know, as I said, I made a hundred dollars. I had no career, and then I met a guy at the Cleveland Browns fan club of America, um, and because in those days they didn't have satellite so you'd go to a bar and you could watch on you know a sports bar to see your your team play and he said we should write a screenplay together and i and and i really liked his girlfriend so i said okay so <laughs> we we i hung out at his house and we said well what do you want to write and he said well why don't we write my friend charlie's life story uh he used to be a bank robber and now he's a bouncer and we should write wow. this guy's life story so this guy came over and he was really charming and italian and he started telling stories about bank robbery. And Mark and I sat down to write this screenplay about this guy's bank robbery light career. And the next thing I knew, Charlie and I were doing almost all the work. And Charlie was just um, a sort of born raconteur and, had a lot, and was desperate to make something of himself because he'd spent so much time in jail. And we were exactly the same age. We were both about 30 at this point. And he and I did a lot of the work together, not all of it, but a lot of it. And then he said to me, let's do another one, just you and I, um, about my life in prison. So we wrote another screenplay, and he came out to L.A. and slept on Jason Bateman's floor and, went and, and partied all the time and met a manager. And then one day I got a call that the manager had sold our prison screenplay to Roger Corman, who wow. was the king wow. of B-movies. Yeah. And our prison movie was not a B-movie. It was a really serious racial drama about race relations in prison and gangs. And it was a serious movie. And and I thought, wow, good for Roger Corman. You know, he's made 800 B-movies, but now he wants to make a good one. Never once yeah. did it occur to me that he was going to take our beautiful script and crush it and make it into a, a terrible B-movie. No. So we made a whopping $6,000 each, and I just made this decision, and I just took and I... I sold every, almost everything I had. I packed up the rest and shipped it. And, and I came to L.A. at the age of 31, and I moved. I, just, I had a, quite a rich and complex life in New York, and I just said, that's it. And I knew that I was just taking a leap off a cliff. Mm-hmm. But I just knew that when you do that in life, I'd read enough books on Buddhism that mm-hmm. usually you sprout wings and fly. And I just knew this was what I had to do. So I came out here, and, and my, I had a girlfriend who came with me, and Charlie slept on our floor, and we got into debt, and I rewrote screenplays day and night for, and about, it took about exactly a year, and we, uh, we, we optioned one script and got a writing job at Disney, of all places, and, wow. and, I, and I was off, and I was in the guild, and, and then things got, were good for the next three years or so. And then after about four years in L.A., I sold a big spec script that I wrote alone. And that was when I really, that was in 94, and that's when I knew that I had really, that I was sort of in the club and I was not going to be poor ever again. Mm-hmm. And it was great. Feels good, huh? <laughs> oh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was I was 35 years old when my ship really came in in the true sense that I was freed from anxiety and fear and all the things that went with it. And, you know, I paid a lot of dues. And... I'm grateful for it in a way because it didn't. I didn't change. I didn't become an asshole. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, cheating on girlfriends, and I didn't turn into some monster the way a lot of a lot of people when when they don't pay their dues they just become really entitled, mm-hmm. and 
And if the world okay. doesn't conform to what they think, they become bitter. And, you know, I'm well aware of how fast everything can be taken away. And every time I get paid to write, I'm profoundly grateful for it. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. Thanks, thanks Lam, for, for calling in. Um, oh, you know, love you. I, I should say that, you know, even within the world of the studio writing, when I had sold scripts and gotten all these jobs and made a lot of money writing screenplays, probably the single biggest thrill of any, like, phone call that you get that's exciting was the call I got from the agent the day that I sold my first novel. You know, and it was like $30,000 or something, but I was just wow. over the moon because that validation in, in the literary sphere meant so mm-hmm. much more to me. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks, Lynn, for for calling in. And yeah, thank you. Really Thanks appreciate it. The show yeah, is going so great. fast. It's, we only have eight minutes left. I'm looking at the clock, Allison. It's like oh. that's a miracle because I thought I wasn't going to make it because I was. Yeah. I woke up so early this morning, but it's been really fun, and I've been I've been awake the whole time. Wow. You have. Yeah, we haven't have nodded off. Perky, time. very perky. Yeah, perky. Well, we might have to edit, Tasha. What do you think? What do you have to edit? Uh, yeah. Well, well we, had, we had some more questions, and um, we were actually going to do kind of like your, your blog survey that, that you know, that Kate Oh, that's like, funny. Yeah. That's funny. Um, well, maybe we can do like three of them, and then I don't know, how long is your poem? Are you oh, going to read us a poem? Yeah, I have a poem that I could read that's probably a, a minute and a half or something. Okay, let's minutes. do that. Why don't you read your poem? Mm-hmm. I, this is a poem I wrote about my father, uh, who I mentioned was a professor and a um, and a poet and, a, and an intense alcoholic. It's called The Difference in the Snow. When I was just a boy, I watched my dad, still young, but already dying of thirst. As buffeted across a snowy lot, he caught his boot and fell, hands out, head first. We'd broken bread together funny phrase, I know, but that's exactly what he said, a thing we rarely did back then, and now we never do, now that he is dead. And breaking bread, we talked of loneliness, his for my mom and mine for I forget. To wash it down, he broke his word and drank. And as he did, my heart began to set. The sun did too. The sky unpacked its snow and I began to pray that he would rise and pay. Instead, he darkened with the room, and I ran out of reassuring things to say. At last he paid the check, but as he did, a girl I liked from school called out my name. I said, you go ahead without me, Dad. I turned my back without a hint of shame. We laughed and flirted mindlessly as he emerged without a hat into the storm. I manned the windowsill and watched as though mere vigilance might keep him straight and warm. He made his way behind the scrim of white, but then the wind rose up. I feared the worst, and touched the trembling window, felt the cold, and saw his fall begin, hands out, head first. A paltry fact, I'm at that window still. I cannot fathom why I let him go. I wish that I had bundled him, or me, or us, and made a difference in the snow. That's really beautiful. That made me cry. Yeah. <laughs> I actually. Oh, Allison. <laughs> I actually sent that poem to um, to 
an N, I believe it was an NAACP newsletter that was doing a special issue of poems about fathers on Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And I just and, a, and my father had worked in civil rights, and I thought they would sort of like that biography because he right. did. He worked to help integrate Charlottesville, Virginia's movie mm-hmm. theaters. And I sent in this poem, and they published it. It was really nice. They published a picture of him and me together. It was really nice. Beautiful. Well, it's, it's beautiful. It's heartbreaking, oh, but it's Thank beautiful. You. you know, I I just think we should end the show with that. I just don't. Yeah. Think okay. We should even ask you the <laughs> questions about Katie's blog. We're gonna have a good cry now. <laughs> you guys are so sweet. Hey, listen. Maybe sometime when the move, when the, if we, if all, if all goes well, we'll be shooting in October, and we'll be over in November. Maybe at some point, we'll, after we have a cast or something, we can come back and maybe even have some of the actors on your show or do something fun like that. That would be wonderful. Incredible, we just adore you, so we, we, uh, we love you. Time. Well, this is a great experience. I I really appreciate all the work you guys did in reading and everything, because most people don't do that, and that's really nice. Well, we enjoyed everything. We enjoyed every movie. We enjoyed the book, and we promise we'll read the trilogy. I'd love it. Oh, I'd love it. All right, well, I'll see you online in, in, the, okay. in the podcast world. Take care. Okay, thanks so All much, right. Allison. Thanks, Allison. Love Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, he's incredible. I love him. He's just so he's so down to earth. He really you know, is. There's nothing Hollywood about him. He's mm-hmm. just... He's just a, a lovely, lovely, lovely guy. Yes, he is. And like Billy so said, I mean, he always gets back to you, and he mm-hmm. never keeps you waiting, and he's always honest, and it's very There's rare. There's no ego. Very no, ra- ego. no ego at all. As successful as he is, no ego. Yeah. It's just fabulous. Woo! <laughs> I know. Two hours. Oh, well, and, what you do you know, want to do? I could talk to him for another two more. Oh, I could have gone on for another. <laughs> he's just terrific. He was an easy guest. He was an easy guest. He's if he talks. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, would you want to give a little Look promo up. for our upcoming shows? I'm kind of like fading last year. I know. I'm sorry. I'm like, that poem no, I didn't sleep good it. last night either, so I'm kind of like, ugh, I'm kind of out of it. Yeah, and the weather's been um, yeah, I don't feel really articulate or with it. But, um, well, we have Tina Sloan, Sloan at Pearson coming up uh, on August 28th at 7 Eastern. And uh, people will remember her probably from her role as uh, Lillian Rains on Guiding Light. And then, it, Jane, I'm terrible with dates. You're going to have to help okay, me. Okay, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, and she also has... Let me see. Oh, yeah, Thursday, September the 6th at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, we're going to have uh, Terry Garber on. And uh, fans of daytime would know her from Santa Barbara General Hospital and As the World Turns, and she was also in Dynasty. And this miniseries, I think it was in the late 80s or early 90s, it's called uh, North and South. And she's going to discuss some of her projects. And then on Tuesday, September 25th at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, we're going to have our buddy Patrick Muldoon on. Rad. Ah, Rad. Get down. (laughs) And he's he's known for his uh, role as Austin Reed in Days of Our Lives, and he's that ultimate bug killer in uh, uh, Starship Troopers. He's just an our, our adorable little sexy surfer dude. So that's going to be a very fun show, a very spontaneous show, like just like him. So that's what we have planned, and I guess maybe next week we'll just 
chat. Let's we'll chat. We'll get back to We'll Facebook. go back to our regularly scheduled programming for a week or two because, Tasha, you go back to school. Yeah, I guess school be... starts back Monday, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, thanks, everybody, for, for uh, listening in. It was a, a special show for us, and I hope that you all enjoyed it. Yeah. We had a good and, time. We hope you did. Yeah. Yeah. So, Thanks, up oh, there's a countdown. Ninety seconds. Yeah. So. <laughs> Just wrap it up. <laughs> we'll wrap it up, and we'll let you guys know um, when our next show will be. Just check out our uh, Facebook page and our Twitter account, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Have a great see week. Okay. Bye bye. Love you guys, and thanks, Allison. We love you. We love you, Allison. Bye bye. Bye. Bye, y'all.